Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Yes, Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror pop culture related, from interviews to reviews, top ten lists, and everything in between. They also have an extensive library of podcasts to listen to, so I highly suggest checking that out after you finish listening to this episode here. And before we get started today, we have a brand spanking new review. Awesome. It comes from S.R. Greenhaw, and they said, Short but incredibly satisfying with a five-star review. They go on to say, I'm obsessed with unsolved mysteries and true crime, and I always learn something new every episode of Ominous Origins. The topics are always fascinating, and Casey does a great job of keeping things interesting and mixing it up. One week he may be talking about alien abductions, the next week he'll discuss an infamous serial killer, the next week he'll delve into demonology, and the next week it will be about killer dolls. Casey packs a ton of great information into these really short and easy to listen to episodes. I have a short attention span, and these episodes are great for anyone to fit into their day without feeling overwhelmed or bored in the slightest. Casey also has the absolute perfect radio voice and the quality of the cast is tremendous. It's crystal clear, professionally edited, and well-produced. One of my absolute favorites, and highly recommended. Thank you very much, SR Greenhaw. It means a whole lot when I hear people say that, and they actually appreciate the quality of the recordings and all that sort of stuff. So thank you once again. If you want to get a shout-out on the show, this is the best way to do it. Leave a five-star review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called nowadays. Now, on to this week's episode. Last week, we looked at a slew of things. Ghosts, serial killers, haunted, and dark histories of a clearly cursed piece of land. So what can possibly top that? I mean, that's what podcasting is all about, right? Upping your game from one week to the next? Well, if that's the case, surely you're disappointed week after week. Anywho, whether this week's topic tops it or not is up to you, but it is a doozy. It mixes real-world horror with the vampire legends of old. It's a cross between cold-blooded murder and vile acts that belong in fiction. This is the story of Richard Trenton Chase. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. At the risk of this podcast turning into a true crime one, I felt the need to find a case that was both interesting to me in a real-life sense, but still holds an air of legend about it. Monsters don't just stalker nightmares. In fact, the worst of them live right next door. Yeah, think about that the next time you're alone at 2am in your apartment. Yeah, sorry. Nevertheless, anybody who has listened to this cast for any length of time will know that I have a love for vampire lore and stories. That mixed with my recent reinvigorated fascination for serial killers, it was only a matter of time before Richard Trenton Chase popped back into my memory. He was a terrible man, just a poor, poor soul, in all honesty. And parts of his story might even make you feel a little sympathetic towards him, but don't. They call him the Vampire of Sacramento 
for a reason. But starting at the beginning, Chase was born on May 23rd, 1950, and by all accounts he was raised in a very strict household. You know the type. Some of you have probably even lived it. Belt beatings, verbal assaults, the bar of soap for dinner, that sort of stuff I'd imagine Richard went through as a child. It was through this abuse, and probably something that was already loose in his head, that he began starting fires and torturing and killing small animals. Traits that were once thought to be the sure-fired sign of a psychopathic killer. As Richard grew up and started the old dating cycle, he was never able to maintain a girlfriend. And apparently he had a few in his pupescent years, because he wasn't able to keep little Richard up for very long. All his girlfriends eventually dumped him for it. Obviously, this would be frustrating to a young man, and surely all kinds of thoughts flew through his head. Maybe he was gay. Maybe he was afraid of being gay. Like so many men in the 60s must have felt. When the problem persisted into his late teens, he decided he'd better go get his head checked out. And so he met with a psychiatrist, who told him the cause of his impotence likely stemmed from repressed anger, and that he was likely suffering from a rather serious mental illness though he was not suggested to be committed. Likely suffering from mental illness and repressed anger? Well, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, how much this shrink actually knew about his past has to play a role. But when somebody like Chase walks into your office, you should know almost right away that this guy's gonna be bad news. It's not like he was Ted Bundy, not overly handsome or charismatic, not the type where once convicted, people would be like, oh, no, not Rick. They'd be more like, yeah, that makes sense. See, there are different types of serial killers out there. There's organized killers who plan, stalk, and meticulously perform their kills to perfection and leave nearly nothing behind. That would have been Ted Bundy in his early years. Then you have people like Chase, who fall into the disorganized killer portfolio. They're sporadic. They don't generally plan, and they're often messy. Yet they're still difficult to catch due to the randomness of their crimes. I mean, that's the bare bones explanation of these types of killers, but it should be enough for you to understand the motives, or lack thereof, for Chase's crimes, which we'll get to shortly. As Chase grew older, it was clear that he was becoming more and more unhinged. He moved out of his parents' house at one point and rapidly went through a number of roommates. It, no, not like that. More like they just couldn't stand him. He was odd, to say the least, and heavily involved in drugs. Hard drugs. When he was stoned, he was paranoid. Actually, he was probably pretty paranoid when he wasn't stoned, too. One report has it that he nailed his closet door shut because, quote, people were invading his space from in there. End quote. Yeah. Clearly, a mind that is not okay. That, well, that was just the start. Our boy here developed into quite a hypochondriac. He always thought something was wrong with him, and he would pursue it until he was either cured or fixed or whatever his mind told him was okay. There are reports of him entering the emergency room saying somebody had stolen his pulmonary artery, and he was there to find them. The person who stole the artery, that is. He claimed that bones were coming out of the back of his head, and that his stomach was backwards, and that his heart would stop beating. I'm guessing because he no longer had a pulmonary artery. That would make sense. 
It was after one of these episodes that a psychiatrist diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic, but thought that some or all of his psychosis was due to his drug use. He was put under 72-hour surveillance, and it was recommended that he stay under supervision, but it was ultimately completely up to him. See, I've always heard that insane people don't know that they're insane, so why would they seek help and stay at a facility if they don't think there's anything wrong with their brain? Just that his stomach goes backwards. You don't need supervision for that. So naturally, he left the facility when he was able. He moved back in with his mom after a little while. But he was so deep into his hypochondria and drug use that it began to take a toll on everybody's life, including his, of course. Richard was a fairly tall man, standing at about 5'11", but weighed only 145 pounds. And here I feel kinda personally attacked, as that was roughly my size up until the pandemic when I put on a few pounds. Don't judge me. Nevertheless, he was losing weight, becoming more and more unhealthy both physically and mentally. He even believed he was being poisoned. At some point, his old dad forced him to get his own apartment. Now this may have been the straw that broke his back, the ultimate stress trigger that pushed him over the edge and paved the way for him to do what he did. Or not. What do I know? What I do know is that shortly after moving out, he began catching rabbits for, well, food. Yeah, he would eat their entrails completely raw, which is super healthy. Raw diets? Very trendy, Richard. Very trendy. He also would make smoothies of sorts out of the rabbits, tossing everything into a blender and drink it. And he did this to stop his heart from shrinking to the point of it disappearing from his body altogether, another one of his paranoid beliefs. At one point, he was even hospitalized for injecting himself with said rabbit's blood, which obviously caused him to become incredibly ill. However, he denied that it was the blood's fault but rather that the rabbit had eaten a battery and the acid from its blood seeped into his stomach. His backwards stomach. Finally, that was enough for doctors to commit him for mental illness. I mean, it only took him injecting rabbit's blood into himself, right? His official diagnosis was schizophrenia suffering from somatic delusions. He was put on antipsychotic meds, which didn't work. Because of the failed meds attempt, it was believed that his illness came from excessive drug use, because heaven forbid that Big Pharma doesn't cure everything. In 1976, Chase escaped his confinements. However, he showed up at his mom's house, thankfully, and he was promptly returned to the hospital before ending up at Beverly Manor, which is an awesome haunted house name, by the way, which was a facility for treating the mentally ill. It didn't take long for him to earn the nickname Dracula. He spoke of how he killed rabbits for their blood, along with other animals. The nickname was given credibility one day when he was found with blood around his mouth and two dead birds outside of the window of his room. This is an actual syndrome. It's called the Renfield Syndrome, and is more or less the medical classification for vampirism in terms of mental illness. He believed he needed to drink blood in order to preserve himself. It's a term that's been around a while. However, despite this belief and the fact that he killed two birds for their blood while under supervision, he was released, being deemed <laughs> no threat to himself or others. His parents were now his supervisors, and they were to care for him as if he were a child, not just their child. 
They had to pay his bills and do his groceries and so on and so forth. It does seem as though Chase's parents didn't need to actually live with him or supervise him in any consistent way, as once again he got his own apartment. Just a side note, who is running these apartment buildings? I haven't seen anything about these being halfway houses or rehab facilities, they're just regular ass apartments. When I was apartment shopping, years ago I needed to give bank statements, proof of income, any pets I might have, my blood type, left arm, and firstborn before even being considered a worthy tenant. Now here's Richard Chase, fresh out of a mental institution, known for killing animals and drinking blood, and he's welcomed with open arms. The 70s man, crazy times. Anyway, shortly after his arrival, neighborhood pets started going missing. To literally nobody's surprise. Of course, Chase was taking them, killing them, and draining them for their blood. This wasn't just rabbits and birds. No, dogs and cats were now on his menu. In fact, he even called one of his neighbors and bragged about what he had done. I assume this was done anonymously. At one point, he was able to buy a gun. A gun. Jesus Christ, do they just give them away like candy to anybody who wants one in the USA. So yeah, devoid of any insight, somebody gave this psychopath a fucking gun. The more I read about this guy and this case, the more I can't help but feel there are so many other people at fault for his actions besides just him. His mother weaned him off antipsychotic meds because she thought he did not need them anymore. And in 1977, his court awarded conservatorship had ended. His parents didn't renew it. And so once again, Richard Trenton Chase was left on his own to do whatever he pleased unmedicated and unsupervised joy not long after chase was i guess deemed to be a cool guy his mom stopped by his place for a regular old hello how you doing but she heard noises coming from the other side of his door violent noises irregular noises and so without provocation or warning she entered and what she saw must have been chilling richard stood in the middle of his apartment holding a dead cat like it was mutilated and upon seeing his mother dearest he threw the cat to the ground in some sort of primal display of expression and tore it open before her very eyes he took the blood from the cat and showered himself in it covering his face and head completely i'd imagine mom just closed the door and slowly walked away pretending as though she saw nothing because she didn't tell anybody about the incident another failure on her part Maybe, just maybe, if she had said something to somebody, he would have been committed again, or locked up for animal cruelty, or something. But knowing the system involved here, he would have been giving a gold star and a pat on his head just before sending him away to do this vile shit all over again. Yeah. Yeah. I know, I'm being harsh on an overworked and underfunded system, and there's no way of knowing what somebody's going to do. But... This guy is all bespelling out that he's going to become a serial killer, and everybody is literally just looking the other way. It's like that scene from The Town, where after the guys rob a bank, they stop their getaway vehicle behind a truck or something, all dressed in their nun costumes, and then the truck moves, revealing a cop sitting there, staring right at them. They look at him, he looks at them, then he just turns his head the other way, not wanting anything to do with it. Yeah. 
That super obscure reference is exactly like this case. Later that year in August, Chase's car, a Ford Ranchero, again, I don't know how this guy has a car. Does he have a job that pays him ridiculously well? I mean, I, 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 I give up. Let's not talk about it. His car was found by police stuck in the sand near Pyramid Lake, Nevada. And inside was a serial killer's closet. They found two rifles, men's clothing, blood everywhere, and a bucket filled with blood and a liver. It made them suspicious. Yeah, that's what I'm reading here. Is that they thought it was strange, at worst, to find all this shit in a car by a lake. <laughs> I mean, you can't help but laugh at the ineptitude of some of these people. These stellar cops eventually spotted a naked and blood-covered Richard Chase in the distance. And when Chase spotted them, he took off. Which is a clear sign of innocence. The police eventually caught up to him, and upon questioning him, he said the blood in the car had, quote, seeped out of him, unquote, super gross. The liver, you might be wondering, was that of a cow. So for whatever reason, once again, he was let go. I'm sure he was ticketed or something, but he wasn't held for any great length of time. It was around this time as well that Chase developed a bit of an obsession with the Hillside Strangler who operated and killed not far from where Chase lived. So, as any serial killer will tell you, animals will never be enough, and for a man as mentally disturbed as Chase, it was only a matter of time until somebody fell victim to his mania. And that victim was Ambrose Griffin, and he was killed by Richard Trenton Chase on December 29th, 1977. On that fateful day, Ambrose had begun helping his wife bring in the groceries from their car, when Mrs. Griffin heard her husband shouting at somebody, an argument over something, but she didn't know what. The shouting was followed by two popping sounds, nothing like she'd ever heard before, and then her beloved husband fell to the ground. Originally, she thought Ambrose had suffered a heart attack, but sadly, that wasn't the case. It was soon revealed that he'd been shot in a random attack. One of their sons had said that they'd seen a man walking around the neighborhood carrying a 22 rifle. And despite that being the caliber of bullet used to shoot Ambrose, that wasn't the particular weapon. Bullet casings and eyewitness reports ultimately led nowhere. One boy claimed to have witnessed the shooting and was even put under hypnosis to recall the license plate of the vehicle that he saw. And while he recited something, and whether or not he actually saw anything, it didn't matter. It led nowhere. The closest thing to a lead the police had was that a woman in the same neighborhood as the Griffins reported that somebody had shot into her home a few days prior to the slaying of Ambrose. The bullets were an exact ballistics match to those used to kill Mr. Griffin. However, even though they had this solid evidence linking the two shootings, they still had no suspects. The trail went cold, and any leads that were had were gone. It's clear at this point that Chase got a sort of thrill from this. Seeing Ambrose die probably made his pee-pee work again. And what do most people do when they get a good feeling? They chase it, try to recreate it. Except that feeling often comes from like ice cream or a video game, not killing somebody. And I say he got a thrill because about two weeks later, he struck again. On January 11th, 1978, during a brief encounter with Chase, a woman, his neighbor, by the name of Don Larson, was stopped by Chase while he asked her for a smoke. 
She gave him one, but that wasn't quite enough for him. He demanded the whole pack, and some reports say he even held her down until she gave them up, which she eventually did, smartly, at which point he let her go. Surely he got a little tingle down there just from the altercation, but not enough to follow through with killing her. That was just the start of his thrill-seeking. Over the next couple of weeks, Chase would attempt to break into homes, and was even successful at least once. Jean Layton witnessed him attempt to open all of the openings to her home, and even met her face-to-face -face at her front door before just walking away. Later in the same neighborhood, he was heard inside the home of Robert and Barbara Edwards, as they too were coming home. He must have heard them and took off running. He even ran past the couple, with Rob giving chase. <laughs> Chasing chase. Could be a good name for a movie. Anyway, Richard got away. When the police arrived, they saw that it was a typical theft case, except that Chase had pissed in the clothing drawer of the Edwards baby, and then took a shit on the kid's bed. So not so typical. Even though there were police in the neighborhood, it didn't seem to detract Chase from his ultimate goal. He was wandering the area for a while longer before coming across a house at 2360 Tioga Way. The door was unlocked, and so he let himself in, naturally. The house belonged to the Wallins, and when he let himself in, he was met by Teresa Wallin, who was 22 years of age and three months pregnant. And with that, I'll leave you with part one, all said and done. I know, I know, cliffhanger, but you'll just have to come back next week to see what happened to Teresa, and ultimately, Richard. My name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to leave a review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Any five-star reviews will be read out on the show as evidenced earlier. So if you want a shout out, that is the best way to do it. Follow along on social as well, on Twitter at Prod, as in production, Instagram at Ominous Origins Pod, or Facebook at Horrorshots. Until next week, thanks for listening.